edition of the podcast. Exactly one year ago today, I started this podcast with hopes of having great storytelling and entertaining some listeners. I believe we've been successful. Some of you have listened from the beginning, stuck around, told some friends, and helped us grow. Some have been hit and miss listeners, and some just downright turned us off. I appreciate all of you, so thank you for listening. Now, today's podcast will be some quick memories I have and some awesome sound bites from the historic Pro Pro Football Hall of Fame roundtable locker room discussion I was able to sit in on. I think you'll enjoy it. So thank you to our sponsor, Yes Pallets. Yes Pallets, the pallet removal, waste removal, and recycling removal company that places risk mitigation, OSHA compliance, and customer-obsessed service first. They can upscale at a moment's notice and remove barriers to provide you with a safe and clean work environment. Now, please be sure to follow me on social media. The Chris Williams Podcast Hour can be found on both IG and Twitter, at the Chris Will Pod, and on Facebook. It's simply the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. I've said it before and I'm saying it again. All our podcasts are good. So enjoy the content you're familiar with and try the unknown. You will learn something from it. And more importantly, you'll get hooked. Now, after one year of podcasts, I think we learned to do some things correctly. Now, none of this is possible without me saying a sincere thank you to all of my podcast guests, from Chucky Brown, who helped us launch, James Tony, Coach Dan Flaherty, Mark Buckwald, Ronnie Shields, Bob Lenart, Coach Greg Erbis, Dewan Gross, Taylor Killerby Starling, 
Brian Flannery, my 1986 St. Ed's Eagles teammates, also Kevin Kruger who did the intro, Danny Andrews, Gardner Payne, Carmen Angelo Tedesco, Mooch, Douglas Fisher, Christy Martin, the real OG from St. Ed's, Kevin Farmer, Kelvin Farmer, Chip Mitchell and Paul Gant, Joe Portali, Dan, ask me a question, Coglin, the lovable Scott Adele, Sebastian Savage, Steve, USS Cunningham, Moe's Miraculous M4 Smith, Henry, Discombobulating Jones, George Hansen Jr., Coach Tom Lombardo, Glenn, the Road Warrior Johnson, John from Seatown, Coach Eric Flannery, St. Ed's historian Norm Weber, Coach John Heffernan, Coach Dave Bowser, my coach Jim McQuaid, Coach Ebony Tanner, the pioneer Dr. Marcus Martin, Sam Cujo, Stephen Breadman Edwards, Marcus David, Brescia Bird, Pat Kennedy, Mijan Knight, Demarcus Williams, Coach Tom Becks, Mr. Anthony Jeffries, Lawrence Peaches Coleman and family, the St. Augustine's University as well, Lionel Jelly Roll Dalton, big brother, I'm still praying for you, I hope you get that kidney, and the newly crowned world boxing champion, Noel the Holy Fire Echevere. Thank all of you for sharing your amazing stories and making my podcast worth listening to. Special shout out to my sisters, Kristen and Kelly. Today is August 19th, the day Lola, my mom, left us to, for us to figure out on our own you know, how to make it in this world. She inspired us to use this platform to tell other people's stories. May God bless us all. And hopefully, we can figure it out together and elevate each other. So Kristen and Kelly, don't you ladies worry about a thing. This is the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. other day he came to the world in the usual way but there were planes to catch and bills to pay he learned to walk while i was away and he was talking for i knew it and as he grew he'd say i'm gonna be like you dad you know i'm gonna be like you and the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon little boy I said, not today, I got a lot to do. 
smile never dimmed and said, I'm gonna be like him, yeah, you know I'm gonna be like him. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you're coming home, dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. Just the other day So much like a man I just had to say Son, I'm proud of you Can you sit for a while? He shook his head And he said with a smile What I'd really like, Dad Is to borrow the car keys See you later Can I have them, please? And the cat's in the cradle And the silver spoon Little boy blue And the man on the moon When you're coming home, son I don't know when But we'll get together then Welcome back to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. And today, on this one-year anniversary edition of the podcast, I have some awesome locker room stories from the Pro Football Hall of Fame inductees from the classes of 2020 and 2021. Ask any athlete what they miss the most about their sport, and they will say the camaraderie those special moments you share with your teammates and sometimes even competitors. And today I have some good stories and sound bites from the best to ever play professional football. But before we go to that, I want to remember the person that inspired me to do this podcast, my late mother, Lola Williams, two years ago today, she passed on August 19th, 2019. Still the absolute darkest day of my life. She was always my biggest fan and made me believe I could do anything I wanted to. She encouraged me. She encouraged my sisters. She encouraged our friends. She even encouraged strangers because she always saw good in others and truly believed we're all talented. Now, I miss her every day. That wound is still fresh, and I still literally have a good cry and a good laugh every day thinking about her. She was that special to me. I also have an occasional moment thinking, what was my mom talking about in certain instances? Either way, I miss her, and I'll continue to miss her. They say time heals all wounds. Well, with every milestone that I come up on, it seems the healing gets worse. So a couple weekends ago, I got my first NFL assignment and wished I could share the news with my mom. I got to cover the induction ceremony for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. What a great opportunity and an even bigger event. You talk about emotions. As a fan, you go to see the greatest football players from your era re receive their highest honor. I mean, that's powerful stuff. But even better, 
I got to see the emotions of the families and the players. Every player's induction speech consisted of a thank you to the people who helped them reach the honor, a short story, a gracious acceptance, and a quick plea to support a cause, whatever it was. It was just a, you know, whether it was a social economic issue or a foundation, everybody said something great. It was fantastic. So Charles Woodson, he went so far as to thank his mom by serenading her with the chorus from the Boys to Men all-time classic, A Song for Mama. He sang, Mama, you know I love you. Mama, you're the queen of my heart. Your love is like tears to my soul. The entire Pro Football Hall of Fame weekend, from the Cowboys-Steelers game to the round table, the gold check ceremonies, for me seeing old teammates just running into people, guys I coached and guys who coached me, and the inductions speeches. This was absolutely the best weekend I've ever had. And it was emotional and it was everything you ever wanted in, when you go to an event. I mean, from A to Z, everything. So from emotions to hype to, you know, to the spectacular fireworks and just seeing your, your, your heroes, it was everything. And I remember I couldn't race home fast enough to, set, to tell my son about the weekend I had, how great it was. So when I finally get back to North Carolina to tell him, I was pretty fired up to, to tell all the stories, everything that happened, people I ran into, who I got to talk to, who I saw, tell them about interviews, whatever. Now, unfortunately, as a young man, he was pretty fired up because he was getting ready to go off to college at UNC Chapel Hill. This young man worked his butt off to get a college scholarship, an academic scholarship. And his family, from his mom, his sisters, his aunts, his late grandmothers, his late grandfather, my dad, they all supported him from when he was tiny, 100% behind everything he did. So it threw me back because, you know, he didn't, he wasn't ex, as excited as I was to tell him the story. And he wasn't really, he really had no interest in what I was talking about. But much like the guys who were receiving the gold jackets at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, he was getting his own honor. And he was heading out to live out his own dream. So... Somewhere along the way, somebody forgot to tell dad how depressed, how sad, and literally how paralyzed I would become knowing my dude, my son, my firstborn, was leaving the nest. At that moment, 
I literally realized why when Peyton Manning was inducted, Archie Manning and all the family members at the Pro Football Hall of Fame were so emotional, were so boohoo crying. I mean, as parents, we literally give everything of ourselves to see our kids succeed. And in doing so, because, you know, you got to pay bills, we miss some time here and some time there. And then all of a sudden, the kids are grown up and they're on their way because they've accomplished exactly what we worked so hard for them to achieve. But yet at some point, they have to leave the comfort of our, our grips. <laughs> you know, our, our, they leave our comfort to find their own comfort and become that super person that we've always shaped them to be. So that is acceptable. But what isn't acceptable and what I'm having a hard time dealing with Is watching that young man walk away from me. Honestly, the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with. And it's crazy because I know he'll be fine. Because we gave him the core values. And he's always been a pretty stand-up kid from what I know. So he might sneak around and do some crazy stuff. But for the most part, he stayed out of trouble. And that's all we asked. So he should be fine. Plus, he's going to UNC Chapel Hill. Everybody's soft over there. So, the of all this ride... You know, watching him grow, watching his sisters grow. I immediately go back to right before he was baptized. And the priest handing out lyrics to Harry Chapin or yeah, Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle. He made us read the lyrics and listen to the song. When I'm telling you, you're sitting there with this, this pretty much newborns. There wasn't a dry eye in the church that night. Not a dry. Not a dry eye. In the house when he was moving. I mean, when it was time to pack his stuff, not a dry eye. In the, just like in the church that night, there wasn't a dry eye in the home that day when he was moving. And like at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, with all those big, big physical specimens, big physical guys, not a dry eye at the Pro Football Hall of Fame during those induction speeches. And it just brought me back to that Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle. When you coming home, son? I don't know. 
I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. We're going to have a good time then. Ah, I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old. But I had to share that story. <sighs> my my big man's leaving. And I got to adjust. So I'm excited for him. Even though he's at UNC Chapel Hill, I'm excited for him. I know he'll have a good time. Like Steve Lowe once told me, the most beautiful women in the world are at UNC Chapel Hill. <laughs> All right, shameless plug time. Please be sure to follow me on social media. The Chris Williams Podcast Hour can be found on both IG and Twitter at the Chris Will Pod and on Facebook. It is simply the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. All right. Enough of all that crying. Here are some locker room stories from the 2020 and 2021 inductees to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I think you'll truly enjoy this. It should truly entertain you. Coach Flores, I want to start this off because you've waited an awful long time. Uh, is that just because I'm the oldest? No. Nothing but respect for Peyton. 
And uh, just to clarify, to, to make up for some lost time, Charles got two interceptions that day as uh, a 39-year-old. So, uh, no, it, it's been fun, but, uh, like Coach Forrest said, to be on this journey with all these guys. Charles and I are reminiscing, you know, we've, we've been to these banquets before, for the, you know, Heisman Trophy ceremony. Uh, he and I were two of four guys at the 98 draft. Now there's 32 guys in the draft. There was just four in that green room uh, uh, back in 1998 and played the number of Pro Bowls together, played against Charles at Oakland and Green Bay. I mean, how many guys can play corner, can play in the slot, can go make a Pro Bowl at safety, win a Super Bowl? You know, I think, I think about Ron Woodson, Ronnie Lott doing that, Charles Woodson could do that. Charles could have still played corner if he wanted to, even when he was playing safety. So great versatility, uh, and uh, it, it is pretty pretty unique and neat to, uh, to, to have played the same exact amount of time in the NFL and to be inducted here in Canton on the same weekend. That's great. because it is so hard to get in. 
Think about so many guys that play this game, retire every year, become eligible every year, and the guys that had great careers, and there's still such a log cap through the senior category, category to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And the matter, it doesn't matter uh, uh, how long you wait, it's how you wait. And I waited with faith and belief that one day it would happen. And, uh, you know, when I got around these guys for the first time, especially the first ballot guys, when we got together at the Super Bowl, we were all partying the same. We were celebrating the same way. They didn't celebrate any different than I celebrated. And you talk about waiting. You talk about waiting. I'm the epitome of waiting. I waited 38 years for this opportunity, okay? 38 years. And I'm here now, and the best thing about it is, God has blessed me with the faculties to understand what's going on, appreciate what's going on, and be able to accept in my presentation tonight what it means to me being in this position. So it doesn't matter how long you wait. It's when, it just when it happens, you're just excited about it. I want to talk to you about that because it's fun because you know, you've gone through this process, been a finalist for a long time, and meanwhile, you're building a Super Bowl championship roster, you know, with the 49ers, you know, finding talent, looking at guys who can emulate the, you know, to be great players. What about the weight but the process kind of occupying yourself, so to speak, of doing that job and also establishing greatness as a general manager? Well, um, haven't done that yet. You gotta win a championship. We've been to one. Um, we didn't quite get it done in San Fran, but we're working hard to do that. But yeah, I think it has been a great distraction. That job is, uh, it's all encompassing. I never knew when I took it, <laughs> how, how much was involved in it. But uh, I'm having a, having a great time. And it's just such an honor to be up here. I'm, I'm listening as Charles speaks, as Drew speaks, as Peyton. Uh, Peyton became one of my best friends playing in the league. And so to go in in his class, Calvin and Coach and Allen, uh, you know, it just feels like, yes, there was a weight. But God does things for a reason. And uh, I think getting to share this with my family, because this year was different. They came to our house. My parents were there. My wife was there. My kids were there. My best friends were there. I think this was the perfect time for me. And uh, it's so special to be here. And thank you to everybody in Canton for making it such a special weekend. So it's a different time, you know. Look, most people are going to say, hey, we're going to remember you as an Indianapolis Colt, John, we're going to remember you as a Tampa Bay Buccaneer, but you both finished your careers with the Denver Broncos. For you, what was it like, I mean, you know, to kind of make that transition, to go to a different team where you, your legacy was already solidified, and then to win another Super Bowl for that organization? Well, it was a tremendous, uh, tremendous honor to have, uh, I've been a part of a championship team for two different organizations. Uh, but Denver was so welcoming to me uh, during that time. I was coming off, coming off an injury, as you know, and uh, it truly was a, a shock, kind of a culture shock. You know, uh, it took me a while to get used to seeing a different color jersey when I was getting dressed before a game. And you got new teammates, you got new coaches, you got a new culture. Uh, but the Broncos, the city of Denver, were so welcoming to me in making that transition. John actually played a big role in that. John uh, 
I was living in Denver at the time and was kind of part of the recruiting process. Hey, come to Denver. I live here. We'll hang out. You know, I signed with Denver. The next year he moves to San Diego. <laughs> and, uh, uh, that's what recruiters do, right? They tell you what they got to tell you. So, uh, but, you know, I'm sure Charles, you know, probably felt this way. Alan got to do it. Calvin got to do it. Drew got to do it. You know, my goal was to play for the team that drafted me my entire career. I think any player should have that goal uh, coming in. I got injured and uh, things changed and uh, got to go find a new place to play and I uh, couldn't have picked a better place to go to Denver. So the nice thing about the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the nice thing about the Pro Football Hall of Fame, as, as Drew alluded to, it's different from others, is that when you go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, you go in as a human being, and you take whoever you want to take in there with you. Right? Other sports, they actually make you pick a team. And I go in as a, uh, as a New Orleans native, as a University of Tennessee grad. Wow. I was very much like Peyton. I, I was really a, an idealist, and, and uh, I couldn't imagine ever playing for another uh, organization. Uh, at a Pro Bowl one year, I was, I was, we had gone to another island, and I'm playing in the sand with my kids. And I look up, and there's Mike Shanahan. We ended up spending some good time. It just so happened the next year, I'm leaving Tampa, and uh, you know, he said, We'd love to have you, and uh, he he, uh, he made a great and real compelling argument for why I should come to Denver. I'm sure glad I did. Uh, became a special part of our family's life. The people, as you heard from the Bronco fans, are some of the best fans in our league. And I love it. Denver will always hold a special place in my heart. But Mike didn't move to San Diego this year. Exactly. Mike did. <laughs> Mike's still in Denver. <laughs> Charles, Charles, you went through it too. I mean, you changed teams and you went to Green Bay to win that championship. And what was it like, because you talked about it, I mean, that's where, you know, you really kind of grew up as well and became a special player. You already were a special player, but became the elite multi-dimensional player that people saw. Yeah, it was, uh, it's like, like, you know, Peyton said, I mean, I got drafted to Oakland you know, in 98, and I, I expect to play there my whole career. You know, I was always considered, you know, the guys, the older guys on the team would always uh, tell myself and Dale Russell, hey, you're one of Al's guys, you're one of Al's guys. So we always felt like, you know, we played in, in Oakland for our entire career. Um, like Peyton, I was coming off an injury, you know, in 2005, I had broken my leg, and um, the Raiders decided they didn't want to use the franchise tag again, so I was out there banging in free agency, and here come the Green Bay Packers, you know, with a, with a full court press. And, you know, I, I reluctantly, you know, went to Green Bay, but, you know, they they, they wanted me. And um, that was the most important thing. And so once I got there and really kind of got myself acclimated, um, got around the guys that I love, you know, Al Harris and Nick Collins and all of those guys, man, we just started to perform. And then it started to feel more and more like home. And you speak of, you know, kind of growing up and maturing, man. I, you know, my wife, um, she was my, she moved in with me. Then we got married and then we had two kids and then we won the Super Bowl. And man, it was, I love Green Bay. <laughs> so Calvin, how was it going up against one? You guys, you guys have had a few good ones, huh? 
Yeah, it was a pain in the neck. You know, he was a pain in my side. You know, just because you know, Wood, he's gonna read the quarterback. You know, he's supposed to play a certain coverage. You know, he might come off that if he's reading something. You know, one thing that uh, you know pisses me off more than anything is using language. You know, he he jumps my routes. <laughs> I remember one time uh, we were running the slant. We were like a twenty-yard line coming out, and like I don't know, Robbins, we just got the ball back anyways, and slant route. He was just reading me. You know, and you know, thanks to him, you know, I had you know I had to tighten up my routes because you know I couldn't have somebody up my routes because I was, you know, flagging what I was about to do. And I ran that slant route and he literally ran it for me and the next, next thing I look up, he's standing in the end zone celebrating. So you know, stuff like that, you know, that makes uh, one handle chuck, you know, that makes more special. How was it going up against Kyle? Yeah, I always tell people that uh, guys like Kyle should be illegal in the NFL. <laughs> Here, 
you know, they can't believe how big this guy is. There's no cornerbacks in the NFL that play uh, the game at his size at that position. And so he was unique in playing that position at his size, and he did it very well. That's why he's a pro football Hall of Famer. some of your players, and we're talking wide receivers and DBs here, so let's, let's, we'll, we'll just kind of keep it right there, but who are some of the outstanding guys that you love to coach? Well, I love the coach. Obviously, uh, Fred Malipikoff was in, I, I threw his first pass as a quarterback. Uh, I came back and coached him as an assistant coach, and then I became the head coach, and I cut him. <laughs> I told him, you shouldn't have dropped that pass back in the 60s before you <laughs> No, he was fun. Uh, he and one hand, he and uh, Club Branch was pretty a good receiver. Speed, the Lord. David Casper was unique because he's a unique guy. I have the Raiders had a lot of kind of unique, quirky guys on their team, and they, but they all, you know, the one thing about about us is that we we look funny sometimes, but when we line up to play, we play, and and, and we make big plays. Uh, great players make big plays in the big game. Uh, in the parade yesterday, it was so fun to see the Steeler fans in their admiration uh, of the uh, of the wars we had when we came to town to Pittsburgh or when they came to Oakland. Uh, those were battles. And they were fun to see. They were fun to coach against. And when it was over, you were exhausted. But uh, you know, it's it's uh, when you when you're when you're playing and then when you go to a coach, you have to, you have to remember what it was like to play and treat your players exactly the way you wanted to be treated. And then sometimes you have to spank them a little bit. This is a question everybody wants answered. If you, you know, it, it may not go over well, but did Franco catch it? <laughs> We went, we went uh, back, to, I was an assistant coach there, and we went back home and we looked at every film possible. And there wasn't a rule then, and uh, we couldn't see anything that was definitive. Uh, I found out years later that, that, uh, that uh, it was still questionable. If he, yeah. We didn't think it was, but had that game been in Oakland, he would not have caught the ball. <laughs> Really stick with you that really brought out the best. 
We know. I think our, I think our games and, and competitive games that we had with the Ravens were, were some of the ones that stick out the most. Uh, playing against Ray, Ed, um, those guys over there, and uh, the defense that they brought was very similar to our defense, and they were just always competitive games. You were going to see something you didn't see on film. They were going to bring something. They knew something. Uh, we played each other too much, and it was always a competitive game, and you always knew it was going to come down to the end. And you never knew. You just never knew. It was always a good game. It was, there's a reason we were always playing on Thursday night, Monday night, Sunday night, because it was a good game. Okay, so Peyton, uh, your teammate Dallas Park was in a little to play on the guys. And that is if they left their phones around, you somehow were able to get in, to unlock them, and then to change the language on their phones. So, he said you used to change it to some form of Chinese, Cantonese, whatever type of language. What's up with that, man? Well, I'm sure all these guys can relate. I mean, when you play football, uh, training camp, locker room, uh, you better learn to have thick skin um, and, and defend yourself, give it out, take it as well. But, you know, pranks and practical jokes were kind of a part of our culture in Indianapolis. You know, Coach Dungey wanted us to work hard. He wanted us to enjoy ourselves, wanted us to be good citizens in the community. But we had a special group. Uh, last night, Adrian James uh, had a celebration. Uh, and, you know, it was all those guys. It was Dallas Clark and Jeff Saturday and Brandon Stokely and Reggie Wayne. And that's kind of what we talk about now is some, some of those fun times and the memories and the pranks. and. Uh, so, you know, I used to work hard, I studied a lot of film, but I think if you don't enjoy the journey and, and have some laughs and have some lighthearted moments, it certainly wouldn't have been as special, and it kind of keeps that balance of, of the grind in training camp. But, yeah, Eli kind of talked about that. Eli's kind of the silent assassin. You know, he thinks he's this sweet, innocent kid. Eli can put your phone in German in seven seconds. And, uh, you know, the beauty of it is, you know, it's, it's a four-step process, right? It's, general settings, language, turning into Chinese. And once it's in Chinese, you can't figure out what settings, general language is in Chinese. And by the way, Steve, he's still doing it. He just got me this year. He, he, he sent me, we were on a golf trip, and he took my phone, and somehow, every time I typed the, it became, and I'll, I'll clean this up, it's a man, I've got to go. It's called text replacements, text replacements. See, I, I mean, that's kind of my new move now. Yeah. Our, our owner, Jed York, uh, sends me a text. How's, how's the golf trip going? It, uh, Jed, it's awesome. We're going to the course right now. Well, the became, man, I gotta go. Jed's going, Jay, what, what, what are you saying? <laughs> are you feeling okay? Are you okay? Has it gotten you yet, Calvin? No, no. Uh, okay. So, so what, was, what was your go-to prank? Oh, man, uh, I'll go back to uh, high school, man. paintball guy. Or not high school, college, paintball guy. So I'll one quick story about that. I still use paintball guy. Paintball's on my guys in the cars. I don't really shoot people anymore, but it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten that back. But we're um, driving around, and one of my teammates had their uh, window open. And uh, they were sitting there around the table, just having a good time. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to shoot the, um, the dishwasher and just see what happens. The machine or the person washing the dishes? No, just the machine. Shoot the machine. They're just sitting here around the corner, somebody's studying, they're just, you know, they're socializing or whatever. I shoot, I hit the, uh, the dishwasher. 
first, the only thing you saw was just papers in the air and everybody disappeared. And we got, we got here. But like it is, we returned to the crime scene later and there were literally cops all around the scene. <laughs> <laughs> you were in Detroit. We didn't get it from <laughs> But no, like, yeah, we'll, we'll, do, uh, we'll find anything like they said, you know, uh, and we'll get pretty reckless with it sometimes. So, you know, really can't, you know, go into depth about some of the things we did. Before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a good time. Alan, we know offensive line with Mikey, the grimiest. Uh, some of the pranks that happened on in your meeting room, your position group. Yeah, you know, we um, don't ever leave a playbook line around. That was uh, probably one of our things. And uh, when these guys started telling the story, I remember. So we're in the Super Bowl. It's the night before the game. And uh, we got a guy who leaves his notebook behind. You know, all week long, tight security, you're holding on to this thing. And uh, his name is Chris. We'll leave it at that. He, uh, he totally forgets it and leaves it behind. Marvell Smith and I find him, we're like, okay, go. So he's not looking, he's not telling anybody. He's completely scared. He shows up to the final meeting room. We tell Coach Cower, and he's, he's like getting on the gag. Coach Cower calls everybody up. Who doesn't have a playbook? I heard there's a rumor they got, they got the playbook. And uh, everybody holds theirs up. Chris, Chris holds his up. I'm like, what's he holding up, man? He's holding up the room service menu book. <laughs> He was holding strong to it, and, uh, but uh, we gave it back to him the night before so we could study it. How bad, how bad was he sweating? Was he doing one of those things that, that changed John's text? He wouldn't, he wouldn't raise his hand at first, and Coach Kyle was like, raise your hand, Chris. What's, what's going on there? And then he finally, that's when he raised up the recipe. But, I mean, uh, Drew, you got to give it A for effort, right? Or at least, you know, being able to take on his feet and get up in the restaurant. Maybe. What about you, Drew? I mean, you were like in the real pre, like, you know, now the guy's been jumping for hazing, and when you play, he had some... I'm sure you got some interesting prank stories. Uh, excuse me, I played with Tom Landry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we had, we were not allowed to have pranks. <laughs> the only uh, closest thing is uh, we ever did was uh, maybe once in a while we'd hire Roger Starbucks car keys. Something like that. I'm sure that went over. Yeah, that went over well. But uh, no, we didn't have pranks. We didn't do those kind of things. Uh, with Coach Landry, uh, it was mostly business. If any pranks were being played, it was outside the locker room for sure. Uh, but it was mostly a serious situation, all business type situation. And uh, a lot of the guys, you know, you know, I played with a lot of guys that at least got great relationships. And, but we never really hung together outside the locker room. You know, everybody said, well, how would you and Roger get that report? You know, and we got it on the practice field and in the locker room and the meeting rooms and things like that. They said, you don't go to dinner with Roger? I said, I see Roger eight hours a day. I don't need to go to dinner with him. I'm ready to go home and be with my family. But no, we didn't do the prank thing uh, that often or that much, and that's why I can't remember any. <laughs> well, since we're at it, Charles. Yeah, well, my, I myself was not a prankster. And I didn't want you playing pranks on me. <laughs> but of course, we, had, we did all the typical things with the snakes in the locker. And the <laughs> Gee, that's typical? Well, not for me. I watched them do it. I wasn't a part of it, so for me, that wasn't my thing. Okay, now Coach Flores, I, since we got going, you said you had a wild roster, which we all know we did. You got to give us something good that happened prank wise or something. Well, we had uh, the players, uh, the training camp was where most of the stuff happened because you're you're locked up and uh, you know you're getting really, you guys are creating a lot of camaraderie, but they also get bored with the repetition day in and day out. Uh, so uh, 
Jeep to the Pikesville open, and uh, here comes a, uh, a streaker. <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, well, that was a streaker. <laughs> we had not a lot of stamina, so things really wore down before, before that streaker circled the field. Didn't make it. <laughs> And then I, I, what should you do? You blow the whistle again and said, all right, let's go. Then they went to work. But they, they all went on it. And that was some of the things they did. Some of the things that they did, uh, other things, can't tell you. <laughs> I'm sure you all have plenty of those. All right, so I got, I got about a five-minute sign here. So we're going to start with you, Alan. And it's a question I ask everybody if you button up these roundtable segments. But who is a player, coach, contributor, whatever? that you would like to see join you in the Hall of Fame? I think for me, it's easily Heinz Ward. I think, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think he's much like an offensive lineman. It's hard to put in the stats what he did because he played the receiver position much how nobody else played the position. And a lot of the things that he brought to the game and did on Sundays aren't, uh, aren't tangible. No, they're not hard facts to, to Defensive backs who are worried about Hines coming across to, to get a crackpot block. Um, the things he was able to do, uh, they, don't, they don't all add up to, to yards and catches and touchdowns. But he changed, he changed the game. There were rules added for him, uh, much like uh, Mel Blunt. And he was, people showed up on Sunday to watch him play. And I think he passes the, uh, the eye test. Coming, but Rondé Barber is a, a, a teammate of mine, and uh, 
grinding, you just look at his numbers, you look at everything. I played with the guy, so I saw it firsthand. He's mentally tough of, of a player that I've ever been around. The numbers speak for itself, and uh, he, I think he, along with Charles, redefined the, playing that nickel uh, slot position. He could blitz, he could cover, he was always around the ball, he scored touchdowns. He's a, he's a Hall of Fame player, he belongs. Well, it's really tough to pick one uh, for me, uh, Steve. Uh, a couple of guys I think don't, don't really need me to campaign for them. I think it's going to happen. It's just it's just going to be a matter of time. Talking talking Reggie Wayne, uh, talking uh, talking Jeff Saturday. I'm sure uh, uh, I could spend a couple hours, you know, telling you what kind of players those guys were, but. Uh, since you mentioned kind of any category, when you talk about the contributor category, uh, there's never been an assistant coach put into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I played for a guy named Annapolis named Tom Moore, who won two Super Bowls in the 70s with the Pittsburgh Steelers, won a Super Bowl with the Colts in 2006, and just won a Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Bucks. And uh, this past year, so he's been in the NFL for over 50 years. Uh, he was a coordinator for the Detroit Lions, back with Herman Moore and uh, uh, Barry Sanders. Anyway, he's just been a, just an NFL lifer, and uh, it seems like if they were ever going to put an assistant coach in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Tom Moore would be the guy. I'm like Peyton, it's very difficult because I play with a lot of great players and I think a lot of those players I played with deserve this type of recognition, including my uh, former roommate, the late great Harvey Martin. You know, defensive, defensive player of the year, Super Bowl MVP, All-Pro, uh, led the team in sacks every year, double-digit sacks. One year he had 23 sacks in one season. Uh, and he certainly deserved this type of recognition. But more so, going back to the uh, contributor category, our original owner of the Dallas Cowboys, Clint Murchison, I, it's a shame to me that he is not in the Hall of Fame. He brought so much to the NFL, but first, by building Texas Stadium, which created the first NFL stadium that was built solely for pro football. And with that, he brought the suites and all that revenue that came with that into the NFL. Gets no credit for that. And then, it's an uh, initial expansion franchise, and he goes out and hires three guys that end up being Hall of Famers. Uh, Tex Ram, who ran the team as the president. Gil Grant, in his innovative ways and choosing talent, he's a Hall of Famer. And of course, Coach Landry. How could he not be in the Hall of Fame? The time I played with the Cowboys, we never had a losing season, and uh, we won six NFC championships. Uh, NFC East championships and won two Super Bowls under his leadership as the owner. So for some reason, he's not in the uh, Cowboy Ring of Honor and uh, he doesn't get any mention for the Hall of Fame, but I will mention him and champion him tonight in my presentation. Sharp. Uh, if you look at Sterling Sharp, 
we just happened to look at any of Stone and Sharp's highlights. Stone and Sharp deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I know his career was cut short, but if you ask, ask DBs who played against him, if you ask Deion Sanders about playing against Stone and Sharp, he'll tell you about the utmost respect that he has for Stone and Sharp. So I think uh, Stone and Sharp should be in the Hall of Fame. They made well, these are very nice. Look what they made me. Attire nice. He wants to be natural and comfortable, not be scripted. So this is the I officially made attire. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, absolutely. So, Steve, like I just said, I want to kick this off. You see the theme of this class. You look at your your, your brother in front. You said these are guys whose actions, you know, really handle their business and getting to know them. You guys have had to wait for eighteen months to get to know each other. What are some of the great things? Now, all the guys are chime in. Some of the lessons or something you learned about again your forever classmates. Well, uh, I learned that all of these guys are well. Like we knew this in the beginning. They're all individuals and they're all special in their own way. You know, Isaac Bruce and you know getting over here and his family. They're, they're wonderful people uh, doing a lot of great things in the community. Uh, same thing, Edwin James getting to know him and, and, and his family and uh, a little bit of his story. Um, when I first saw Edwin and when I first met him, I didn't know what he would be like. I thought he would be kind of a mild, boisterous guy, but he's so mellow, he's so cool. And, and his message, his message in this speech yesterday was perfect for the moment. You Ed's about that speech. I mean, it really hit. I mean, a lot of people really felt that. You know, explain a little bit maybe about, you know, your meaning behind it, why you felt it was so important to do it. I just think that as, as football players, a lot of people look up to us, but they don't really understand us. And you see, you see things happen, and a lot of people just ignore them. And there's so many elephants in the room like, we have to say something for us to get better. And we always talk about improving and everybody coming together. <clears throat> I think that's the thing we have to do. We have to keep the conversation going. I think people like myself and people on the stage, anytime you get an opportunity, not bash nobody, but just let's let's figure this thing out because we all we are one and we all together. You're the two wide receivers up here. I'm looking across. Big hit safety. Big hit safety. Big hit safety. Big hit safety. So, Isaac. I'm going to run across the middle against some of these guys. You know, it's funny last night we were taking a picture and uh, Cliff Harris, he was, he was coming up on stage and you got this screen in the back. It looks like a wall, but it's not a wall. And you got this little space in between. And uh, he's trying to get by. He's about to fall immediately, and not on purpose. My wide receiver, hating DB mindset, said, push him down. Thank you, Is that an advantage or a disadvantage against some of these guys coming across the middle? It's a lot of, a 
Well, I was actually head and body the head state state game, but you know, I played against uh, two of these guys up here, and uh, it's just not liking one of them. You know, like, who, who I got me, you know? I'm just, I love both, both of these guys, you know, but you know, I didn't play against um, Donnie that much, Donnie Shell. Donnie hated me. If, I mean, he used to hit me and say different and nasty things to me. <laughs> Harold was just ugly, just ugly. When we have a lot of money. Yeah, but Donnie, who was also playing on Sunday. When we're we on the bus, Donnie and Cliff, I didn't want them behind me because they're cheap shot. <laughs> this guy, Cliff, I tell you, he and I, and, and I'm so glad God gave us the opportunity to be together, but we hate, I hated him, I don't know if he hated me. <laughs> He was always trying to hurt me. <laughs> Cheap shot. <laughs> I'd have to jump to try to hit him in the head. <laughs> he knocked me out in one of the games. I mean, so you tell me what, who doesn't like who. <laughs> you hit one of my teammates and I told him I was going to get you. <laughs> <laughs> and this could go along for a Jimbo, you're caught in the middle between this discussion right here. You have to, you have to play bodyguard right here. But, but real quick, you and Hutch. And, and Hutch, I want you to get involved in this. When, you, when you're up on stage with somebody who's great, it's Jimbo, and, and kind of really set the tone for a lot of things. And you're getting to know each other over the times that you guys worked up in 2020. What has that been like? I mean, have you guys ever discussed techniques or anything like this? Is it any football discussion? Or is it really just, you know, some of the stories and some of the things you guys went through and are going through? Well, it's the closest to the bar. We're always at, right? Yeah. <laughs> where's the beer? Where's the bar? That's where all the offensive linemen have. True, true alive fashion. But where the bar is, the tip is not far enough. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. Go ahead, Jimbo. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I think, you know, if there's something about a team, this is such a team sport, and you see, oh, now we're on a different team that's uh, forever. But uh, I think the offensive line is a team within a team. You know, I mean, everybody is so close. You have to work the five of together. You have to know each other like brothers. You have to think like each other. Because your job is to protect the quarterback and to make sure the running backs have the ability to run. And and, uh, and and you have to do that. The only way you can do that is know each other very, very well. And so that's what offensive linemen are. And we're just a team within a team. And I think it's a special fraternity. You know, I think. You know, our class is unique in, in more than one way, just the size of it, obviously, and, and the, the centennial, um, the, the whole, um, you know, part of that. But, but the cool thing is, is, you know, if it was just the five of us, the modern guys, we're, we're all relatively, you know, the same age, playing the same era, you know, to, you know, Steve kind of spanned a little bit, um, he was a little bit before us, a little bit, but I get to hear all the stories from these guys. And for me, and this is probably, being a, a Viking, it's, Last us to say, but I, I grew up a Bears fan, so you know, well, watching you know, you know, the, the '80s Bears play, and so for me to just you know hear his stories and how the generation before did it, and, and but you know things changed, but some things never changed really. You know, it's like the, the two days and hearing you know how the old line do everything together, and that, that, that part of the game hasn't changed. And you get a you get a different appreciation and, and you know, a different. Aspects from, from some of these guys, and it's been the whole process has been great. 
I love it. Okay, Coach Kyle, I, I want to ask you, you're looking at all, all the talent up here. How would you coach him? How would you put it together? You got four safeties. Can they all play big, you know, big nickel you put in some package? We'd find a way, Steve. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is, um, you know, just being here with these guys and since the centennial class has been put together, we've had a couple of meetings down in Miami after the Super Bowl. Just being here with them, it's just, um, it's just so special. I'm just, you know, I've competed against a lot of these guys. I get to share a story with Isaac. And, uh, Isaac says, you know, hey, coach, you know, he passed me up on the draft. You know, <laughs> well, you know, he's probably looking at another position. He said, nah, he took a receiver in the first drive. <laughs> and I went number 33. I said, so, uh, you know, I said, you know what, uh, Sometimes we make mistakes. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it is just, you know, to have that, even with Commissioner Taggart, you know, I think I was like the last person he handed the Lombardi Trophy to in Detroit. And, um, you know, it's just the complexity of this class from the standpoint of the line, the safeties being recognized, and how many years we had at safeties, and obviously having this guy next to us. To me, kind of redefine the position. Please cut the guy right here. But, um, you know, Steve Adlock, you know, I was in Kansas City as a defensive coordinator, and I love watching these safeties play the game. You know, I remember sitting down in the panel with you, Steve, um, uh, with Steve and with Troy, and talking about the defenses and the skies out and out, and what you're seeing and what you're asked to do. So the game of football is so diverse, so complex, but yet in a lot of ways it's very simple. And these guys up here make it look easy. It's not an easy game. It's uncomfortable at times. But these guys all with their own individual skill set and at their positions have made it look easy. And it's an honor and a privilege to be on the same stage with them. Bill and I played against each other, and we were talking about <laughs> hell yeah. We were talking about last night, and when he played for the Eagles, and in '83, and uh, he broke Jeff Fisher's leg, um, and uh, Why I I put him right into coaching. Which I tell Jeff that all the time. He says, if it wasn't for me, he wouldn't be one of the head coach of the National Football League. <laughs> <laughs> That's a clean shot. Oh yeah, it was a clean shot. It was like, it's, Jeff wasn't very swift either, but I think so. Nice to meet you. It was over nineteen seventy. That's nice. I love that. But uh, of course, Cal, we played together for yeah. yeah. So uh, he's not that young. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Troy, coach has talked about a special relationship you guys had. You, you talked about. Your rookie year was tough. He was on you. You didn't think you could do anything right, and then you guys had the breakthrough. Kind of, kind of walk us through that breakthrough and how things took off from there. Um, yeah, the, uh, my rookie year obviously was very uh, was very uh, difficult year. In fact, it's funny. Um, one confirmation, literally one confirmation, that I had my rookie year that I could actually play was again St. Louis and. Uh, Isaac actually ran a big route down the middle and I was playing a little third and I tackled him. And, and for a safety, it's actually a very difficult tackle to tackle a, a 
before you're running straight across your face, let alone him. And I tackled him. And I just remember in the back of my mind saying, I did it. I, could, I did it once. I could possibly do it again. Again, that, the rest of the year was horrible. But that one thing <laughs> is what I took in the offseason with me. And, uh, and it was actually a real moment of, of realization of whether or not I had it or not. But I knew that if I were to give it everything I, I, I had, I could walk away with my head up. And that's what I did. I, I really started taking training seriously and diet seriously and those sort of things and making those little sacrifices that you hear about what other players do. You start to incorporate that and really start to develop your own routine, your own lifestyle, and how, how you want to you know, uh, pursue your goals. And so it was definitely a trying year. Um, it's obviously very great to have a coach who's very patient with you and still in a lot of confidence throughout that process. Isaac, what about that affirmation? I know we got a chuckle out of it, but when you have a guy who's a rookie and he says he made a play on you and that kind of affirmed to him that he could do this, I mean, that alone right there tells you about your greatness. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, uh, everybody up there has had that moment, you know, that really solidified that, uh, really confirmed that you can play on that next level. Some some of us or some of us happened in college and others in training camp. And uh, you know, for me, uh, I had those moments. I got baptized my first eight weeks of training camp. I mean six weeks of training camp. And then the game really didn't slow down for me for about eight weeks. And then I was really confident that I could play in the league. And I started making some plays. So I, I really feel with uh Troy Sanders. Diane, what was that moment for you? you know, undrafted, South Carolina State. That when you realized, okay, I'm in this. Because you know, you you can't, you, you had some, some, some great players on that defense where you said, I belong playing with some of these guys like me and Joe Green. Well, initially, you know, you got to come in the league and kind of, uh, with that team back then, because all of a sudden they were you know, in the Pro Bowl the year before I got there. So I said, my niche is uh, probably on the special team, so I got to make my niche on the special team. So, uh, I made up my mind to be the best special team player on that team. And then they start getting me in the lineup and, and on the goal line for the former linebacker and then um, but uh, switched me my rookie year in training camp. I thought he was gonna cut me. He told me to go to the corner. I said, uh no blind. Six four, two thirty. Well, I can't go to the other side. DG Thomas was 6'2, 220. So, what do you tell me, Coach? You want to cut me? He said, No, we want to, we're trying to find that team cover him. Like, we want to put music in the nickel bag and make some things with him. I said, Okay, Coach. But I think my third year, my third year of being in the league and, and getting familiar with the system and everything, I felt real comfortable and, and, and able to, um, to do, um, do the things that need to get done. Hey, Paul, I want, to, I want to bring you in this. When you, when you sit here on the stage and you hear these stories, right, a lot of these things happen in your watch. When you when you look at some of the great things that happened, some of the great players that came through when you were commissioner, what are some of the things that come to mind? Well, I think I, I alluded to it last night. I said some things about hard work and respect for everybody, but I also referred to the annual quest for the perfect season. Can you put that into the concrete terms, it means who's going to beat Don Shulis at 17 and 0. And that's where it starts. I think every, and you've seen it with New England, you've seen the Bears at 18 and 1. 
But I think that permeates really that I go to the training camp and talk to the players in training camp about this is the beginning of your opportunity to have the perfect season. So, so what I learned was that I'm in a business as a business leader, but in a sport where the attitude is if it ain't broke, fix it anyway. Make sure you're the perfect team, the perfect player. And, and that, that, that's a sobering thought. That's, you know, I learned as a kid about hard work and respect to learn in the NFL. If you have the attitude of April and fix it, you, you have a good chance of succeeding. That's not an easy thing to do, but that's what these guys do. They innovate, they change, they make it better, and each generation is at least as good, if not better than the past. But someone said we can't, someone said we can't compare to those generations, but that attitude of April and fix it, I think is what makes this job of mine so beautiful. You know, you, you see, uh, someone referred to the other day, I think Chris Carter referred to Drew Pearson, and those who referred to Paul Orphan, and those who referred to Isaac Bruce. They all, all those guys who are determined to fix it anyway, even if it is broke, fix it. There you go. So, Cliff, you and I have great stories. Yeah, you and I have great stories, undrafted. Safeties, worked your way in. But you also, uh, you didn't play against each other, but your team did a couple of Super Bowls, correct? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we played uh, a couple of great Super Bowl games and, uh, against the Steelers. Of course, we played two other really great ones that we won. Uh, I, I, I left those out for purpose of the conversation. So, uh, yeah, they, you know, that team was such a great team. Steeler team was such a great team that year. We were so close, and uh, I still uh, wake up in the middle of the night uh, trying to hurdle Rocky Blyer and get to Bradshaw on my safety blitz and, and hitting. I just wanted to get over it one time instead of getting that pass off to Lynn Swan and flop falling down there. So, uh, but it's a uh, uh, it was a great great contest. They were a great team during that. And so were, so were we. We just edge away, right? So Pittsburgh had a great team. Guy, do you recall it the same way? I never lost to Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> So you can't count those. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we were uh, the season when the Cowboys were the night, and one of the Cowboy fans came. We were sitting together, and he came up to me and said, "We, we, you did in 1985. We, we beat you guys." I said, "You got to go back to 1985." <laughs> <laughs> no, they really don't. 1995, they beat us in the Super Bowl. <laughs> Thank you. 
Vinny Smith. Change the game because of your style of play. 
and the guy had a presence on the field. I mean, people had a game plan for him. People knew where he was. That's a Hall of Fame player. Um, defensively, um, it's Clay Matthews. <laughs> Clay Matthews never missed a game. What he did in terms of his ability to rush the quarterback from a coverage standpoint, this guy played outside linebacker. He taught me things that I was teaching guys like Barry Thomas. I was teaching guys like Joey Porter. I was teaching guys like Greg Moore. I go back to the things that I learned from Clay Matthews. That guy is, without a doubt, should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, as a coach, night, I said it last night. Um, this guy had over 200 wins in over 20 years. There's 14 assistant coaches that went on to become head coaches. Look at that guy's tree. The how he influenced him. He has four of his assistant coaches that became head coaches of the Super Bowls. Marty shot him. Marty shot him. It has to be L.C. Greenwood. Some kind of way, well, maybe it's in the black and 
uh, football hall of fame area. But these guys, I know they're in there already, but they sharpened us. You know, I, I didn't play under those, but they made us good to get us ready for the NFL. And uh, really, I think that it should get some type, some type of consideration.